I'm Joseph Dweck, and this is Humans Being. My guest this episode is Richard E. Nisbet. Richard is an American social psychologist and writer. He's the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Social Psychology and co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. In his book, The Geography of Thought, which we discuss at length in this conversation, he explores differences between Eastern and Western perception and thought. He specifically focuses on people raised in East Asia and those in Europe and North America. We explored how people on opposite sides of the globe see the world and discussed whether our IQ is fixed from birth. We looked at some of his fascinating experiments around perception and cognition and talked about what this might mean for a globalized world. Dr. Nesbitt, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be able to talk with you about the interesting issues you've raised. Yeah, well, I mean, all of that really came from reading uh, your book, The The Geography of Thought, which uh, really got me thinking about these major differences that you, you bring out between Eastern and Western thought, which I very much want to get into with you. I have a lot of questions around that. But before we do, uh, humans being is about not only the ideas uh, of the people that, um, that are on the podcast, but also about how they got to those ideas, about their lives. And so I'm really interested to hear from you how you came to spending your life thinking about how we think, which is really what you do. You've spent your life thinking about how human beings think. What were the early experiences, influences that, that led you down that path? I, uh, I read a bit in your, um, your memoirs that were recently published called Thinking, aptly named. And I remember you, you wrote, there was one line that I, that I read at the very beginning that I actually laughed out loud uh, reading where you said that your mother tied you to a clothesline to keep you from drifting out into the neighborhood. <laughs> so maybe you could start around there and bring us in broad strokes to how you came to, you know, to doing what you're doing. Right. Uh, yeah, that is, <laughs> it's a very strange thing, actually, that you would have to tie a kid down to keep him from wandering. I didn't think of that as unusual at all until um, a few years back, I asked my mother, whether my brother had been a wanderer like me. She said, no, he didn't seem to need to do that at all. And I'm not sure. And I'm, then I began, well, my goodness, maybe I was unusual in that respect. But I always, when I wandered, certainly by the time I was in El Paso, by the, when I was wandering around, I, I was, felt like I was on an adventure. It was always an adventure, although it was just still yesterday's cotton field <laughs> that I was walking through. So that's a somewhat unusual. Uh, so you really, from the time that you were very young and explorer, you wanted to under, you wanted to find out about things. Yeah, I don't know that it. I wanted to find out. I just wanted the sensations. Uh, <laughs> it was exciting, right? It was exciting. When did you realize that that thinking uh, was really exciting for you? That that was something that you really wanted to spend time uh, exploring. Well, I would say it was when I read Calvin Hall's Primer of Freudian Psychology. Uh, and I just found it was just, I just so was so excited. I mean, here's this guy who's figured out what's going on in our heads and how that influences our behaviors. And I was extremely interested by it. How old were you when you read that? 15. Wow. So. 
So brought about around that age, you kind of had an idea that this is something that you really wanted to get into. Oh, right. No, I, I, by the time I finished the book, I said, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a very clear, uh, a very clear aim by that time in life. That's, That's right. amazing. And you never, doesn't sound, it sounds like you really never turned back that this, and thank goodness that you didn't because you've, you've given us so much. Right. Now, when I was in college, I, it was interesting. Uh, everybody I knew, where I don't, well, shall I be a lawyer or, or you know, do I, well, do I want to be a writer? They didn't, they didn't have a clear plan. I mean, long before I got to college, I, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And that, that's a real advantage. I mean, because then you can pursue your interests in college with respect to the extent to which it can support what you think is going to be your life. Business. Do you think that that clarity helped you to really focus on the studies themselves and the work that you were doing of what you yeah. wanted to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I related everything I think that I was doing to my interest in psychology. And I took a fair number of philosophy courses because I thought philosophy was relevant to the kind of systematic approach that I wanted to take to mm-hmm. human behavior. So it's a good, a good complement to psychology. Yes, it was. It was, yeah. it was excellent. And I also took a lot of English courses uh, mm-hmm. just because I, I, I love to read. I always have. Do you, you read fiction as well, or are you finding you, you find yourself mostly reading the nonfiction stuff? Well, it's interesting. I have, <clears throat> I have noticed that uh, most people, even if they loved fiction when they were young, as they age, fiction sort of loses its appeal. And so I think we just, most of us, many of us, just lose our need for narrative. Uh, hmm, I have no idea why that should be. But that's a very interesting thought. So you think that that's something that's kind of broad. It's not just to particular individuals that as one gets older, that there's, there's less of a propensity to that. Why do you think that is? I really don't know. I mean, it's, you could say that the real question here is not why do lots of people lose what was once a passion for narrative and ask, why do you have it in the first place? <laughs> why do we all have that? And I, my, the best I can come up with is, it's the way we learn. It's the way we learn how people behave, how they should behave, what's right, what's wrong, what's, what uh, increases uh, the value of your life, what decreases the value of your life. And it's, I mean, that's, fiction is wonderful for teaching you how to live. But I know by, by the time you're 30, you, you figure, well, that's about all I need. <laughs> it's not going great anyway, and I'm not sure that the narrative is helping. There's so much in what you just said that is fascinating to me. And I'm going, I want to go down that road with you a bit because we'll come back to the East-West stuff um, in, in a few moments. But, I mean, you're raising such important points, too. The first, about narrative itself, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, the fact that we tend to learn around story is fascinating. I'm thinking of it also from a Jewish perspective. And, you know, the Jewish people have always held narrative as central to the way that we raise, you know, our kids, the way that we form our communities. We will literally on 
the festival of Passover, sit down and say and tell our story. We, we made a whole festival out of it. And right. what place does narrative have in learning? How is why is it that that's the way that we that we tend to learn? What is what value? What's the value in it? Well, I, I mean, the value is that that we do learn. But on the the Jewish theme, I, I don't think it's any accident um, that Jews have had the impact on the world that they've had because of the. I mean, talk about narrative, powerful narrative. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is, I mean, many of the stories are just absolutely riveting uh, in the Bible. And for whatever reason, I, I have a, I mean, they're called the people of the book. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> it's a big part of, of the peoplehood, absolutely. Right. And uh, one of the most, I, I actually... I'm an, an aspiring Jew myself. My 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 wife and virtually all of my friends are Jewish. But the single the single thing that's astonished me most about Jews is when I the temple where my wife and I go. Uh, there's a uh, I'm sure this is true everywhere. Um, the uh, there's a I don't recall the name of the holiday, but the entire congregation of the temple marches along behind the the Torah. <laughs> oh, I yeah. Mean, that's called Simchat Torah. That's actually the rejoicing over the Torah. Right. Yes. I mean, that's, that's just so extraordinary. I mean... It is extraordinary. <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, the... You know, it's interesting to hear you say that, but yes, the um, story narrative has been a, a central part of the Jewish people for... You know, a very long time. This other point that you you make that you know around thirty years old we kind of get tired or we made a decision that we know enough to function in life, whereas when we're children, our mothers have to tie us to clotheslines because right. <laughs> we're out we're out exploring. I was a headmaster of a of an of an elementary school in in New York and. I used to tell the teachers when they would complain that the students were lazy, that students are not lazy. Children are not lazy. There's something perhaps that's keeping them from being able to learn. There may be other impediments, but it's what children do. I mean, they, they are driven to learn. They're driven to discover. And then I, I've said before, and it's interesting to hear you say that it seems to be that we do, in general, get to a point in our lives where we slow down uh, on on the learning. Do you think that it's true that that in general human beings feel like we have a, enough of a working definition of our world that the effort that's necessary in learning kind of diminishes? Well, you know, I've never th I've never thought about that before, but I I like I, I like the idea. I think it. Uh, although, mm. I mean, we do. We do continue to like to learn, but I think what what a lot of people shift away from is away from narrative, away from fiction, and toward history, biography, science, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's just a different way of learning about the world. But we, we never we never learn lose the the need for narrative and the pleasure in it. I mean, as we're talking, I'm thinking that the clergy. They'll talk for a while in the ab in the abstract, and then they'll start with a story, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the story can be the 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 centerpiece of the sermon. The narrative is the hook, and uh, and it's what helps us to 
understand, and it, it, it brings f- forward emotions. And I think emotions are tremendously important to learning. Among the, the aspects of thought that you've studied, reason, rationality, you've studied IQ and intelligence. Right. And you've written about the findings of Richard Herrnstein and Charles Murray in their book, The Bell Curve, which you, essentially you, you, you disagree with. I don't know if I should say fundamentally. Should I say fundamentally? Absolutely. Fundamentally. Funda- fundamentally and disagree completely. with. <laughs> so, right. Among the various uh, points that they suggested in that book, they, they suggested that uh, environment uh, was uh, negligible uh, in influencing IQ and intelligence. What are right. your thoughts on that? What do you, what's your response to that in the book well, in general? I should say what they said in that book was uh, completely consistent with the position of psychology up to that point. And there are still plenty of psychologists today who would endorse pretty much everything in that book. The core of psychologists' understanding of IQ was that it's largely genetic uh, that uh, life experiences don't have a great deal uh, to do with it, that it's very difficult to increase IQ by any any means, and differences across groups in IQ are, uh, they're, they're not primarily due to experiences, they're primarily due to uh, what's inherited uh, mm-hmm. biologically. There's a variety of things that, that cause me to, to doubt it. For one thing, uh, there's evidence about uh, the effects of adoption. You, you can compare two kids, siblings. One uh, is raised the family of origin and the other is adopted. Adopted children typically are living in uh, middle class or upper middle class families, stable families. Uh, the kid who's left behind is often living in a much less desirable environment, one that maybe sometimes is chaotic in many, in many ways. So th- there are dramatic differences frequently between the environment of the adopted child and the uh, environment of the sibling. That difference is worth about 12 IQ points on the average, which is mm. very big. That's significant. Oh, yes. It's the difference between, let's say, a clerk or a, a tradesperson and a professional person on, on average, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, so, and that was not so well known at the time. There was not that much data on it at the point that uh, the bell curve was written. But now it's, it's you know, perfectly clear uh, that that's the case. The, the other so the, the adoption uh, work is what uh, you know convinced me that the environment is actually important. But uh, it turns out that the way that you calculate heritability of mm-hmm. a trait like IQ, mm-hmm. the way that you assign a value to the degree of heritability, many people think that Heritability refers to what percent of your intelligence is due to genes. That's utterly wrong. It's just as crazy as uh, asking the question, what percent of the area of a rectangle is due to the length? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
Uh, the heritability means what percent of the variation in the population is owing to genes. As opposed to as opposed to the environment. environment. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. And it, that's a neat, very neat di- dichotomy. Every influence on a trait is either genetic okay. or environmental. So the way that it's calculated is very misleading. And I, I can give an analogy to, oh, let's say, basketball playing skill. You take two kids, identical twins, and raise one of them in a basketball poor environment. Mm-hmm. Not many kids in the neighborhood and very little ability to play basketball at all. And the other identical twin is raised in an environment where there's lots of kids in the neighborhood. There's a basketball court in the neighborhood. And if the uh, equipment, that is the speed and the, uh, and the reaction time and so on, are all wired to be very good in both cases, the the kid who lives in the environment that's basketball rich is going to be good at basketball. Mm -hmm. The kid raised in one that's not, where is not going to be good. So the environment is everything. (laughs) But then the way we calculate heritability, genes end up looking like it's, it's accounting for everything. Because Typically, there's not going to be that much difference in the environment of those two identical twins. It's, it's only in the, if they have the extremes that I just described where you yeah. would get a difference. If it's a normal environment for both kids, both kids are going to, in effect, modify their own environment. They're going to be playing the game. They're going to be encouraged to do it. They're going to be coached to it. They're going to be chosen for a team and so on. So all of that similarity in the identical twins is dependent on their interaction with the environment. So it's quite contextual. That's right. It's quite, yes. I'm going to, on that, turn to some of the questions that I have on your book about the difference of thought between Eastern and Western people, the geography of thought. Because context is so much part of that. Right. Uh, the, the element of difference. You. In the introduction, mention that until you started this research looking at the differences between how Eastern and Western people think, that you believe that all human beings perceive and reason in the same way. Right. And that only afterwards did you realize that these were the fundamentals of, of thought that you found uh, that were different were uh, learned rather than innate. Right. Did that did that change your understanding of human beings? How did that affect you, those discoveries? Well, certainly that played into my work on intelligence to say, look, if you can get these kinds of massive differences mm-hmm. in the way that people think, which is all due to environmental factors, it you begin to think, well, maybe the kinds of thinking that are reflected in mm-hmm. IQ tests, maybe those differences as well are heavily influenced by the environment. And I'm actually going to ask you to describe the the differences briefly because I know that, you know, in general and I'm and it's a very general treatment of it that that in the west there is much more emphasis on the individualistic focus on objects, 
on the elements of the objects that that are studied and in the east it's it's much more focused on contextual elements interplay interrelationships is that an accurate in terms of a general understanding of it yeah that that's a very good characterization of the difference i might think about why why might there be any differences yeah that work was done early, or the much, certainly much earlier than my cognitive work, people in the East Asia are very interdependent. They, they are very connected with other people. Being an effective person in East Asia has always been dependent, for the most part, on your interactions with other people, your being in a harmonious relation uh, with other people. And in the West, as you pointed out, people have tended to be uh, highly independent. They act on their own. They act uh, to a substantial extent in ways that are not dependent on interaction with other people. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the background. That's very well established. Some of those differences between interdependence and independence Those differences are are have been w- quite well established before my work got mm-hmm. done, but when we started finding that there are these differences in attention to the context, the explanation we came up with was well that's because if if you're very much dependent for being effective on your interaction with other people, you're going to be paying attention to other people. They're going to be important to you. And that attention to the social context extends to the context at large. And our our most striking experiment was having people look at um, underwater scenes Mm -hmm. of fish swimming around. And we we showed people 20-second clips of these underwater scenes and asked them, what did you see? And... uh, the American subjects, I would say, well, um, I, I saw three big fish uh, swimming off to the left. They had white bellies and pink stipples on their bellies and, and, a, and a dorsal fin. Uh, they talk about these central objects. That's mostly what they tell you that they saw. The Japanese subject would say, well, I saw what looked uh, like a stream, uh, the water was green. Uh, there were rocks uh, and shells on the bottom. Uh, there were plants. Uh, there were three big fish swimming off to the left. <laughs> <laughs> so much more centered on the environment, on the context right. in which these fish were swimming, whereas the the Americans are looking directly at the objects within first. Right. And wow. and they're looking not just at and this at, is happening at, in high percentages in these groups, right? This is like oh yeah, these are amazing. Yeah, these they're they're very striking differences. I mean, this blew me away. Uh, the Japanese student who was working with me <laughs> came up with the idea. Well, you know, uh, you could do a study where you showed people pictures and you'd see differences, but everybody knows that. Asians and Westerners. I said, no, no, everybody doesn't know. (laughs) So it was very striking. And we subsequently found that uh, it's not just that there are differences in the amount of attention paid to the context. East Asians are seeing relationships among those contextual elements. Mm -hmm. And if you show them a picture, if you show, Mm -hmm. just show a still picture for a few seconds, 
-hmm. And we have, you know, devices to figure out where they're looking at, at every point. The Americans are spending all their time focusing on different parts of the central object. The East Asians are spending about half their time looking at the context, and they're looking back and forth between the context and the object. So these are the perceptual differences, but the, the cognitive differences are, are also very uh, extreme. So it's very much the way that uh, they're seeing the world. I mean, it's really a fundamentally different way of seeing the world, and it's learned. I was fascinated uh, to read your suggestion, because you trace the Western thought uh, back to the Greeks, essentially, and you trace the Eastern thought essentially back to ancient China, right? And you suggest that the at least one of the reasons for the differences in thought is their geography, right? In East Asia, it's possible to do highly cooperative farming. the mm-hmm. The land tends to be relatively flat. Uh, the soil is rich. There are uh, rivers that can be uh, deflected into canals and large scale agriculture is, is the bread and butter, or I should say the rice <laughs> of yeah. East Asia. But in Greece, large scale farming is just not possible. Uh, Greece is basically mountains descending to the sea, uh, and the kind of uh, way you make a living is by kitchen gardening, by herding, by fishing. Uh, on the open sea, and so on. So the occupational roles of people in Greece were relatively independent. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. you're on your own uh, yeah. with all these things, you and the sheep out there. So you're spending a tremendous amount of time thinking in terms of of you and your life, as opposed to thinking about how I have to cooperate. Right, Exactly. Uh, and that's a big, a very big difference between. I mean, Westerners feel like they're in control uh, mm-hmm. of what's they going feel on. Feel like I like that. They, I like absolutely, that absolutely. Yeah, they feel like they feel, that's right. They're much. <laughs> they 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 are quite mistaken in how much control they have, and it's easy to do funny experiments where people <laughs> watching people think they have control over something. What's they an have no control. What's an example of an experiment? Oh. Like uh, Oh, we could have people doing some task uh, where events are randomly determined. Uh, so they're, they're pressing levers and they and they think that they're making something happen that actually was being controlled by the experimenter or was mm-hmm. controlled by nothing. It's just random events, but they think they know what's going on. They think they know have have some kind of control. It sounds like that Westerners tend to think uh, causally and mechanically, um, perhaps because they recognize um, the world in more in more objective, uh, individualistic terms. They think, okay, if I have this and I do this, this happens. Whereas an Easterner may take into consideration much more complexity as to the cause and effect of events. Right. Well, the the Easterners is well aware of the fact that the control is divided over their group. Uh, There's a wonderful experiment done, Mm -hmm. not by us, but in relation to work that we had done on uh, if the 
the agricultural idea, the, the, the economic idea is what's going on. You would expect there to be differences between the way people think in North China and South China, because mm-hmm. in North China, it's not that different from the mid, Midwest of the U.S. I mean, it's, uh, they can do independent farms and, uh, and wheat is the crop that they grow. In the South, it's rice. That's what they depend on. And rice agriculture is highly interactive. I mean, you are totally dependent on other people if you're going to re- get enough, uh, a good crop of rice. Uh, you have to uh, handle irrigation uh, in common with other people. You have to plant at the same time w- with other people and so on. It's much more. Co- and in fact, North Chinese are much more like Westerners. Really? Yes. Of course, it's not the geography itself that's that's determinant. We have one study where I had a, a, uh, was fortunate in having a Turkish student who was a very skilled person. And she said, you know, I know an area of Turkey uh, where there are three major occupations that one is a fishing on the open sea in large boats, it's very cooperative. I mean, you, you, you're completely dependent on other people's action in concert with your own in order to get your fish. And there are farmers who uh, are relatively uh, large-scale f- farmers. They're like plantations. Uh, and there are herders. And she said, you know, if you, if you guys you in our research group have got it right about uh, the kinds of occupations determining the way people think. It ought to be the case that those herdsmen think more analytically, they think more in terms of categories than the, the farmers or the fishers. And sure enough, that's what she found. Uh, there's, <laughs> so right there, it, right there in one place, the, the geography, the overall geography is the same, but the occupations are different. And it's the day-to-day existence that determines whether you, you're paying attention to the context or you're paying attention just to your own actions. Mm-hmm. What are the pros and cons of the respective modes of thought? Well, it's very striking uh, to me. The, in that underwater scenes experiment, the Japanese are able to report much more about the context than the Americans are, but they, in the end, they can re- report just as much about the objects as the Americans do. So they're basically at no cost, they're getting the information that they need about the central objects and all kinds of other things as well. I mean, so it's, it's just very, str- there's no trade-off there. It is wow. as if- That's a pretty <clears throat> serious statement. It's a very serious statement. I mean, so it's a, it's a very big, advantage uh, hmm. of of eastern thought do you think i'm gonna uh, a side question on that then is the west missing out yes i think we do but right now i mean east asians mm-hmm. are learning western ways of thinking we haven't talked about it much so far here but the cognitive differences are are quite marked i mean the just as like the perceptual differences are the westerner is paying closer attention to the attributes of the object. And they're very concerned with categorizing the object because 
they, they want they want to apply general rules about categories to the behavior of this particular object uh, that they're concerned with. So mm-hmm. Westerners do much more in the way of categorization, and they are attending to rules uh, about the behavior of that object. So their world is very much concerned with uh, get the category, get and then you know the rules that will apply, and this will allow you to control the object. Again, and very much control involved. When you can categorize things and you know their properties, you can control them. Exactly, exactly. And all of that is much weaker in, in East Asian thought. So that's the advantage of, of Western thought. And, and it's, it's no accident that it was Westerners who came up with science. And it's striking because at the time, science b- developed in Greece and Rome, the Chinese were leagues ahead of the West in technological uh, Technology, things. but not right. science necessarily. But not science. And, and because science is all about rules and categories. Uh, it, that's so what it is. Would you say that that is one major advantage, that the focus on objects and their properties and categorizing really gave rise to modern science? That's right. I think it was dependent on that. Mm-hmm. But now, today, of course, East Asians are, are doing science. They're doing it very well. Mm-hmm. And the Western cognitive habits are easy to learn. Right. Well, okay, I'll categorize that thing. I'll learn the rules. So I do think that uh, East and West are growing closer together, but it's all because of the movement on the Eastern side. It sounds like it's easier to go from contextual to individual rather than vice versa. Absolutely. Absolutely. uh, Hmm. I think any change of paradigm is is profoundly challenging. Any t- any change of a paradigm of thought is profoundly challenging. It sounds like the Eastern thinkers that are thinking contextually and absorb in their context the 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 details can incorporate that into their own paradigm. Whereas for the Westerner, who is essentially not seeing or seeing it very dimly, the the contextual aspects would almost need to shift paradigm in order to be able to incorporate that. Yes. Yes, that that's a, that's a start on why it is that it's so difficult, but I, for me it's introspection. I mean, I'm learning about these eastern ways of thinking mm-hmm. and I see the advantages in many respects, but I don't really have the feeling that I've <laughs> I've moved much in their direction. The only thing I can say is that I have started paying attention to context more in situations. I mean, and, and meetings are uh, a, a very good example of where I, I do think, actually, this is the only example where I think I have changed a little bit. I pay much more attention to what other people are doing and thinking and saying, you know, what's, what's Sam thinking about here? What's, what does Jane want to accomplish here? That, for me, was a big change. I mean, mm. uh, I'm not sure that it changed my processes of thinking, but it changed what the contents of my thoughts were. I mean, right. I was aware of other people, their needs, their mm-hmm. beliefs, and so on. To a greater So that's degree. very interesting. So you say that the content of your thought was perhaps <clears throat> broader, right? but not necessarily the way. 
I mean, that's, right. it probably is one of the most difficult things for us to change. It's one thing to change uh, what we think about. It's it's a very different thing to to change the way we think or how we actually think about things. Because we're using the thing that we think with to change the things that we so change the way that we think, which is, you know, kind of needing to rewire the motherboard, isn't it? Right. And the understanding of of human thought and of intelligence was that it's prior to the kind of work that I've been involved in, was that you you really can't change process much. And for a while I was doing work showing the kinds of errors that people make uh, in uh, in reasoning, and I thought, since I thought, well, processes, you know, are pro- that's not changeable. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, not only do we make all these errors, we're not so smart as we'd like to be in the world. You can't make us smarter. You can't change processes. And I actually started a program of research to show that you can't change the way people think. And we started looking at the effects of education and probability and statistics and uh, formal logic, cost-benefit analysis to show that, you know, even a college education doesn't do much for you in those respects. And that was spectacularly wrong. Spectacularly Uh, wrong, meaning that the, the assumption that, or the theory that you cannot change the way one thinks. Right. Okay. So we wow. we give people everyday life kinds of problems. We show the kinds of errors that people make, like because they don't apply the, the law of large numbers to a problem or they don't apply some simple probabilistic rule. And we looked at the effect of four years of undergraduate education at the University of Michigan. And there are Big changes in these things, especially for people in the social and behavioral sciences. Uh, they just think much more effectively about, mm. uh, about, about even the most mundane things. For example, and this is not ideal example for your, <laughs> for your British audience, but... Go uh, for it. Go for uh, it. So, but they'll, they'll, they'll have no trouble uh, understanding. <laughs> it's about baseball. Mm-hmm. If you ask a freshman in college... The, the first week in college, you, you say, you know, uh, it's interesting that at the beginning of the baseball season, there are often many batters with averages of 250 or higher, but nobody ever finishes the season with such a high average. Why do you suppose that is? They'll give you a purely causal answer. They say, well, the pitchers make the ne- necessary adjustments or they get cocky and they slack off. Anybody who, who's had statistics, however, anybody who's, they'll, they'll say, well, wait a minute. I mean, uh, extreme sample values are more likely with small samples. Over the long haul, you you reduce the extreme. I mean, you think about it, the first time somebody's at bat, uh, they their batting average is either zero or one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, Astonishing to me is that after they've had a, like one statistics course in mm-hmm. college, they're very likely to give you the statistical answer there rather than these crummy causal answers. Right. But this is true for all kinds of problems and for which probabilistic or statistical reasons. 
uh, or even logical ones. By the way, people in the social and behavioral sciences are good at picking up these scientific and mathematical things to apply to everyday life. It does nothing for their ability to apply, to apply formal logic to everyday life events. And for reasons that are not clear to me, liberal arts, people in the liberal arts do improve their ability to think logically. It, it sounds like with the, the right priming, it, we really can change the way that we think. It may not necessarily be, be easy. It may take you know, some consistency and, and, and uh, you know, vigilance, but it sounds like with the right priming, we, we can. Well, actually, we, since we found these dramatic changes in the way people think as a result of a college education, uh, we said, well, well can, can we do it short term? And so we started doing studies, like, for example, in the law of large numbers, spending with 20 or 30 minutes with people, explaining mm. what the people sort of understand the law of large numbers. They, they, they understand more evidence is better than less evidence. Right. But you can, you can refine their understanding and broaden their ability to apply that principle in 20 minutes of education. I mean, and and we know and wow. it's not just it's not just in the laboratory that we've changed them because we call them up pretending to be opinion measured people who uh, assess public opinion and we give them questions uh, in that context where it, there's a, a a law of large numbers based answer uh, that they can draw on or one that's purely causal and mistaken. Uh, and, you know, a month after they've had our 20-minute laboratory session, they're somewhat better at being able to apply in this completely different context. So it's, <laughs> I mean, psychology got some really important things very wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a young, soft science. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's done some remarkable uh you know, discovery in the time that it's been a discipline, you know, a recognized discipline. But yeah, and one and one of those, you know, one of the important components of it is is to recognize that uh, being wrong is is okay. <laughs> it's it's an important right. part of being able to develop. You know, when I think about the um, differences between looking at an object and its properties, focusing on that, as opposed to thinking about contextual interrelationships. I keep thinking about the scientific aspects, right? That science is emerging from the the societies that think in terms of categories, that think in terms of logical deduction. And so that means that there are there are going to be truths that are discovered that are there. There are truths about certain properties, elements, details that are there. The context brings with it meaning. And that's what changes with context. What something means has a great variance depending on how broad or how varied the context within which I see the detail uh, is. Right. So I wonder, you know, in the West, where we're looking a great deal about how things work, rather than you know, why they are or what they mean. In the East, it seems that there's a great deal more focus on meaning um, rather than uh, mechanism. What are the differences 
in society, what have you found in terms of the differences in, in the ways that the societies functioned based on that? The way I got involved in looking at uh, the East was in 1982. Mm-hmm. I was uh, invited to give a series of lectures at Peking University. And uh, I stayed there for six weeks. And before I went, I did a lot of reading. And while I was there, of course, I did a lot of thinking about what's going on around me. And what just astonished me was the discovery that there is no concept there of individual rights. I mean, as as distinct from society. I mean, the way of thinking about the individual in society in the West is that we have certain, you know, inalienable rights, so mm-hmm. to speak, that our own preferences are allowed to exert themselves uh, in the way we behave. And that has never been the case in East Asia. Your rights are sort of, rather than something you own personally and carry around to different places, your rights are something, your share of the total freedom in society. Yeah. So the meaning of the individual is inextricably embedded in the society within which the individual finds oneself. Absolutely. And one of the most striking things is that it's hard for us to understand that if an East Asian loses a friend, the friend dies or something, they literally think of themselves as a different person. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, we have that, you know, Mm -hmm. if if I lost my wife, I would certainly think I'm a different person. I mean, Mm -hmm. a a very large fraction of what I am Mm -hmm. uh, is her and my interactions with her. So we understand that concept. It's just that they apply it much more broadly. They apply it to just a friend. I mean, they literally think they're a different person because they've been thinking about their lives and their actions all the time in relation to always these in relation always that's in relation. right that's right and they yank that relation out that they're a different person so i hear this and there was a very interesting point that you wrote in the book if i understood it correctly that geographically the cuz we're talking essentially about extremes here we're talking about extreme you know, Eastern thinking, which is, as you're describing it, like deeply embedded in, in contextual relationships where the individual object almost doesn't have presence on its own, as opposed to far, you know, the far West thinking in which the individual or the object and its, and its properties are the main aspect of thought and, and attention and the background is, or the context essentially just background. But there is a range, there is a spectrum, it would seem, in terms of how it is that this thinking kind of manifests for people. I'm thinking, of course, about Jewish people. And of course, I mean, you know, the Jewish people have been all over the place. And you genuinely will have, you know, Western Jews thinking very, very differently from Eastern Jews. Um, And that means uh, there's a strange phenomenon that happens because we have, as you say, we're the people of the book and we have central texts that we study. But, you know, Western Jews will look at the Talmud, for example, very differently than Eastern Jews will look at the Talmud. They'll look at it much more analytically. Uh, they will parse things much more as opposed to Eastern Jews, which will look at which will look at the information in broader context, will look at law in terms of its interrelationships to other laws and how it is that those come into play with each other. And 
I'm thinking about Jewish tradition because the the core traditions uh, of Judaism essentially were born in Babylon and then Palestine, you know, in Israel, right. and <clears throat> that those regions had some level of balance. Certainly, certainly in in Jewish thought, there's a balance between the collective, the contextual, the interrelated, and the individual and object oriented. So mm-hmm. it, you know, there's this. Very famous statement by Hillel the Elder in the Talmud, in which he says, in the individual terms, in the Hebrew, which means if I'm not for myself, then who's going to be for me? Meaning I got to take care of myself. It's my life. I'm the only one who can live it. And immediately after that, he says, but when I'm only for myself and I'm not thinking about my relationships and interconnections, what am I really? You know, I'm, I, yeah. I'm not, I don't live in a vacuum. I'm not completely isolated. And so I wonder with globalization, because that's essentially a, a kind of balance between the two modes of thought. With globalization, do you anticipate that there will be more of a, a melding, a synthesis of Eastern and Western thought. You said before that you think that the East are doing all the work, the heavy lifting. <laughs> with right, this. But, exactly. But what do you anticipate? Well, that's what I anticipate, is that they are, they're going to move in our direction. Will we be able to incorporate more of what they bring to the table? And should we? Uh, well, we certainly should. I think that there are great virtues of both kinds of thinking. And one thing that's that, that, that fairly early in this research that attracted my attention was that the two perspectives are very helpful for criticizing. That So you, you can criticize Western behavior and thought and perception from the standpoint of, of the Eastern contextual relational view mm-hmm. i mean and you can see you can see, you can see what's wrong with with what we're doing it, mm-hmm. it's, it stands out in high relief if you look at it from an eastern perspective but the opposite is also true you can see what's wrong with an eastern perspective where they're likely to make errors um if uh, if you view their thought and their perceptions from a from a Western standpoint. So you know, I'm <laughs> saying that now. It's sort of changed my opinion on the question you you asked. Uh, I do think we're we're going to move somewhat in their direction because we know how to. We will at least learn how to criticize our own mm-hmm. uh, behavior and thought uh, in ways that we we didn't have before. And I should say one other thing about. Eastern thought is that from a very early point, Chinese understood the concept of action at a distance because, you know, it was obvious to them that they're paying attention to the context so they can see the influence that the context is having. The idea of action at a distance did not uh, come to the West. And action at a distance, you mean essentially working from a wider range lens or... or well, no, actually, actual causation. I mean, they understood uh, the reasons for the tides, for example. Uh-huh. Galileo didn't understand uh, okay. the reasons for the tide. Okay. Mm-hmm. They understood magnetism and auditory phenomena <clears throat> at a point of 2,000 years before these things were understood in the West. Uh, obviously, they didn't understand it 
in a scientific sense. So right. Like, so it's almost as though it was closer to them because of the way that they thought. They had they were, right. there were less barrier of kind of understanding what was going exactly. on. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. They okay. could they could see what was in, they could see some really important stuff that was going on in the world mm-hmm. because of their habitual ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. One of the really important things that came to me which is which I'm remem- reminded of now that you're mentioning, you know, the ability to criticize from one one end uh, of the world to the other, is that the one of the real values of your work in this area is that it's not just a subjective criticism. You are identifying the margins of error that the respective modes of thought tend to uh, stumble upon or tend to make, right. and that helps bring it to a more objective place and where we can say, listen, look at the margins of error because of the way that you're approaching this. Look at the margins of error because you're approaching this. Let's see what we can do to try and change the thinking or to at least adjust, develop the thinking into a a more balanced approach. Right. Well, I would hope so. I'm absolutely fascinated by your characterization of Eastern and Western Jewish thought. There is a great story in the Talmud, you know, talking about changing paradigms of thought. There's a great story in the Talmud that says, you know, so there were schools in in, uh, Palestine and there were schools in uh, Babylonia, uh, Jewish schools, Jewish uh, Talmudic schools. And they had significantly different modes of, of study. They would study the same text, yeah. but they had very different modes of study. And so it says that one of the rabbis was moving from one uh, uh, essentially study study hall to another, um, from the Palestinian one to the Babylonian one. It says he fasted for 40 days so that he could forget the way that he thought <laughs> so that he would be able to actually learn their mode without projecting his, his, his way of thinking onto everything that they were going to teach him. So there's definitely been, you know, ancient sensitivities to this, but yes, there are, there are very, very different modes of thought. And actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's the reason for discrepancy, but between what we call Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews. So the Sephardic Jews essentially originated in, in, uh, you know, the Iberian peninsula and then moved to the Middle East, and the Ashkenazi Jews are Franco-German Jews, uh, then Eastern European Jews, and there is a very different way that the both see uh, the world, and right. for that matter, Judaism itself, and they don't always realize that the reason why they are seeing so differently is because of their paradigms or because of the modes of their thought, right. that they're seeing the same texts, the same ideas, the same concepts in very different through very different lenses. Are there any elements that have emerged in Western thinking or philosophy that echo parallel Eastern modes of thinking? Yeah. Uh, Is there influence of Asian thought on scientific thought in the West? Well, there certainly is in dialectical thinking. The first thing that's different is for people with taking a dialectical approach is that they're well aware of change. And if you if you're paying it think about it, if you're paying attention to the context, you're going to see change. So you're going to believe in change. And actually the the most striking difference to me between Chinese thought and Greek thought is that the Greeks thought the world is unchanging. Remember? Right. I mean it's, it's that is a, that is a serious point. Wow. I never thought of it that way. I have never been able to understand where the hell 
the Greeks got the idea that the world was unchanging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were committed to it almost in a religious way. Right. Uh, so, uh, if you whereas look at the context, you're going to notice change. Right. A central aspect of East Asian thought is is the um, is the uh, the constant change. Yeah, the yin yang, yeah. which is right. why and they can handle uh, paradox better than the West. Absolutely, absolutely. And now to get to the point that what influence of Eastern thought on Western thought, the physicist Niels Bohr, who's most responsible for the modern physical concept that, for example, light is both a particle and a wave. I mean, he was steeped in East Asian thought. and and attributed his physics uh, to his understanding of, of of East Asian thought and an ability to apply it to, to physical events. So change is constant in the East. It's you know slow to occur, may not occur in the West. Um, and those perspectives, I, I would say, the primary way. I, mean, I always. Think of it in terms of a scientific team. I mean, you would always want to have Eastern scientists and Western scientists working on a given problem together because that is a be- great point. That's one way of 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 merging the, yes. the paradigms. Right, amazing, fascinating stuff. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, definitely it definitely gets one to to pay more attention to how how one thinks and how one processes uh, the information in the world around them. So uh, it's, you know, this, this reading is essential reading. Thank you so much for, for writing it and putting it out there, the geography of thought, how Asians and Westerners think differently and why. I got to say, I'm so grateful to you for your time and for the fascinating talk and for, for the work that you've put out. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a lovely conversation. You've been listening to Humans Being with me, Joseph Dweck. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out the links in the show notes for more information. 